coming up on Harvard Chan This Week in Health, how can schools create a more inclusive environment for transgender and gender non-binary students? So if you're in a school where adults are saying, we affirm and support your gender identity, peers may take the cue from that and figure they're not going to get away with targeting this young person. But if you're in a school and community where adults are uh, really pushing back against the young person expressing their gender identity, there may be uh, more opportunities for bullying and harassment. In this week's episode, we speak with the author of a new study that showed how school policies around restrooms and locker rooms can affect the risk of sexual assault among transgender and gender non-binary teens. Hello and welcome to Harvard Chan This Week in Health. I'm Noah Levitt. And I'm Amy Montemiro. In this week's episode, we're speaking to the author of a new study that found transgender and gender non-binary teens face a greater risk of sexual assault in schools that prevent them from using bathrooms or locker rooms consistent with their gender identity. The study was led by Gabe Murchison, a doctoral student at the Harvard Chan School. Murchison and co-authors looked at data from a survey of nearly 3,700 U.S. teens aged 13 to 17 and found that 36% of transgender or gender non-binary students with restricted bathroom or locker use access reported being sexually assaulted in the previous 12 months. Of all students surveyed, one quarter reported being a victim of sexual assault in the past year. I recently sat down with Murchison to talk about the study and why restrooms and locker room policies are so critical. We also discuss broad steps that schools, parents, and physicians can take to create more inclusive environments for transgender and gender non-binary adolescents. Take a listen. For this study, you looked at transgender and gender non-binary teens. Uh, So to start, can you just explain what each of those terms mean? Absolutely. Um, So transgender usually refers to someone whose gender identity doesn't match what was expected for the sex they were assigned at birth. Um, So, for instance, you might have someone who was born and everyone took a look at them and said, okay, that's a boy. But then when they got a little older, they said, actually, really, I don't feel like a boy. I feel more like a girl. Or they might say, I don't feel like a boy or a girl. I feel like a combination of the two or somewhere in between or something totally different. Um, So if that person says, I feel more like a girl, then we'd refer to them as a transgender girl or if they were an adult, a transgender woman. Um, But if they said, I don't feel like either a boy or a girl or a mix of the two or something like that, then we might use the term Mm non-binary. So most non-binary people also identify as transgender, but not all transgender people are non-binary. They might just be a a boy or man or a girl or a woman who's transgender. And so before we dive into the study in particular, I did want to kind of start a little broadly. And, you know, I think one of the things you you noted in this study is that kind of for teens who fall into these groups, they already face a lot of what you just what you term peer victimization. Mm-hmm. So can you describe a little bit about what, what that is and what forms it, does that take? Sure. Um, so I think the um, classic example and uh, probably what's gotten the most attention in research uh, would be uh, bullying. Um, so, uh, you know, verbal negative comments, exclusion by peers, and even physical harassment. Um, Something that's maybe gotten a little less attention, but I think is really important to understand, um, is that oftentimes that bullying takes the form of sexual harassment. So those negative comments uh, might be sexualized, or there might be uh, unwanted uh, physical contact that's done in a sexual way. Mm -hmm. Um, So there's really a lot of overlap between bullying and sexual harassment, but the sexual dimensions of it haven't always gotten as much attention. Mm -hmm. Um, And then Sexual harassment, of course, is a spectrum um, where uh, it can be verbal or it can be something that takes place online, but it can also involve unwanted physical contact, and that's a form of sexual assault. And are we seeing any trends in terms of, like, is this, are these levels of sexual harassment overall increasing? Are they being reported more? What are some of the trends there with regards to harassment? 
I think it's a little bit tough to know um, because sexual harassment uh, typically hasn't been measured well in research. So it's a little mm -hmm. hard to know what's happened over time because we haven't had good ways of looking at it back into the past. Um, in terms of whether uh, trans and non-binary youth are experiencing more or less harassment than they used to, it may depend a lot on where you look. So there certainly are more trans and non-binary young people who are coming out at younger ages. Um, so probably the overall levels that are happening uh, have gone up because there are simply more kids who have the potential to have this experience. Um, at the same time, we have seen uh, bullying and harassment and sexual harassment based on uh, someone's gender expression, so how masculine or feminine they look um, or act. Um, th and that's been going on for a long time. So those aren't necessarily uh, kids who grew up to be transgender or non-binary, but the idea that people are being harassed in K-12 schools based on how other kids perceive their gender is not at all new. That's been going on for decades. And you touched on it just a second ago with uh, more kind of adolescents who might be coming out younger. And, you know, is there something unique about that kind of K through 12 period? I mean, that's, that's obviously a long period of time, but that makes kind of those teens kind of uniquely vulnerable during that period. With transgender and non-binary youth, there really is no particular age that people come out. Um, so uh, people can begin to understand that their gender is different from what was expected of them, uh, even in early childhood. And it, uh, really, uh, people can have this realization at any age. Um, what's unique about the middle and high school years uh, is really the fact that kids are spending more time with their peers, uh, not supervised by adults. Mm -hmm. um, so for instance, in middle or high school, kids may start to uh, use uh, locker rooms to change for physical education and sports, and that's often a time that's unsupervised. That's why we see so much harassment in that space. Also, kids are much more likely to be hanging out with their peers after school without an adult around. So it's more that there are more opportunities for kids mm. to engage in really serious uh, harassment behaviors when there's not an adult paying attention. Mm. And so for this specific study, you looked at the effect of policies around restroom and locker room usage for these teens. So, so why did you choose to study this? I mean, I think you just alluded to it right there a little bit. And then what policies in particular were you looking at? So I think there's a few reasons uh, why it's important to take a closer look at restroom and locker room policies. Um, one is that for all youth, uh, restrooms and locker rooms at school tend to be an unsupervised space, and so they're a space uh, where harassment may take place. Um, and another is that uh, this has become, when it comes to trans and non-binary kids, restrooms and locker rooms have become a very politicized hot-button issue. Um, and because they've become so politically symbolic in terms of whether we respect transgender and non-binary youth or whether we are trying to uh, put pressure on them to not express their gender identity in schools and communities, um, we felt it was a policy where other youth in the community might take cues from what the adults are saying in terms of how they should be treating their peers. Mm. So if you're in a school where uh, adults are saying, we affirm and support your gender identity, um, then peers may take the cue from that um, and figure they're not going to get away with targeting this young person. Um, but if you're in a school and community where adults are uh, really pushing back against the young person expressing their gender identity, um, there may be uh, more opportunities for bullying and harassment. Um, so peers are really taking, we think peers are taking cues from adults. Um, and because restrooms and locker rooms in particular are so politicized, that may be a major cue that young people are looking to in terms of how they should be treating their peers. That, that's really interesting. So in a sense, like restrooms and locker rooms can kind of like be a bellwether for acceptance, but also 
you know, younger teens might kind of view this as like, it's almost okay to bully because these particular policies are in place. And so what did you find then with regards to the relationship between these policies and the risk of sexual assault among the teens that you studied? So overall, what we found is uh, that transgender and non-binary youth uh, who were in a school where a teacher or school staff member had told them they weren't allowed to use the restroom or locker room associated with their gender identity um, were more likely to have been sexually assaulted in the past year. So we looked overall at uh, youth who were in middle or high school, so youth who were between the ages of uh, 13 and 17. Mm -hmm. um, we didn't uh, break the results down by age group there. Um, we did uh, break the results down in terms of uh, both kids' gender identity, um, so being a boy or girl or non-binary, uh, as well as the sex they were assigned at birth, uh, which would be either male or female. Um, and when we looked separately at those groups, uh, we found uh, clear evidence for an association between restroom and locker room policies and sexual assault risk in three out of the four categories we looked at. So transgender girls, transgender boys, and non-binary youth who were assigned to female sex at birth. We didn't find evidence for that association specifically in non-binary youth assigned to male sex at birth, mm -hmm. um, but our sample size for that group was really small, so it was hard for us to say anything conclusive about them. And so would, would, is the next step kind of trying to run another study maybe with like a larger sample size to kind of, you know, or maybe even like over a larger kind of age group span? Probably our next step will be to look more closely at uh, what's actually going on. So we mm -hmm. know that uh, in this, uh, in this sample, there was an association between these policies and sexual assault. Um, we didn't have as much ability to say why um, or uh, what to do about it. Um, so some important next steps uh, might be looking, for instance, at uh, lower level sexual harassment behaviors. Um, in our data set, um, uh, other forms of sexual harassment, so uh, verbal behaviors, unwanted touching uh, that didn't fall into our definition of sexual assault in this case um, seemed to statistically explain the association mm -hmm. between the policies and sexual assault. Um, so uh, one thing we may look at next is whether doing something about sexual harassment behaviors uh, can actually reduce the risk of sexual assault. Well, and you mentioned earlier this idea that kind of harassment is this continuum. So is, is I mean, would one of the ideas be that if you can intervene when you see maybe what you would call like lower levels of harassment that it could prevent kind of escalation into more severe forms or sexual assault? Yeah, I think that's a great way of thinking about it. Um, so obviously one takeaway is that uh, we uh, should be very concerned about restrictive policies uh, with respect to restrooms and locker rooms, but just getting rid of those restrictive policies is probably not going to solve the problem. Um, we should also be looking at other ways that teachers and school staff uh, set the tone for how to treat transgender and non-binary youth. Um, and from uh, previous work with LGBTQ youth in general, so including youth who are uh, lesbian, gay, bisexual, pansexual, and so on, mm -hmm. um, is that whether teachers specifically intervene to stop anti-LGBTQ bullying uh, seems to have a really important effect. Um, so uh, one potential takeaway is can we be doing, can we be training teachers to intervene specifically in those types of bullying, as well as other identity-based bullying, such as uh, racial and ethnic bullying, religious bullying, and so on? And can we extend that to uh, also specifically address sexual harassment behaviors? And so on, on the flip side, with something like, you know, schools where, 
there are all gender restrooms, for example. Do is there any data yet on kind of the the benefits like having all gender restrooms can reduce these types of bullying? So what what's kind of the flip side there? I mean, among schools or buildings that have you know uh, more kind of more policies that are that are focused on acceptance. There's good uh, qualitative data on youth whose schools have affirmative policies, um, and particularly for all gender restrooms. So youth say. Um, What's really beneficial is having an all-gender restroom. So that doesn't mean making all restrooms in the school available regardless of gender. It means having one or more restrooms that can be used by anyone regardless of gender. And youth say that's really beneficial. And when it's most beneficial is when that's a restroom that all students uh, not only are able to use, but that all students actually use. Mm -hmm. Um, So what youth say is a real problem is any kind of restroom or locker room situation that singles out transgender and non-binary students. So some transgender and non-binary students have been told by their school that they have to use uh, a single-person unisex restroom that's really intended for staff or it's really intended to be used by the nurse's office, and they're the only student who's using that restroom. And youth say that that singles them out and causes a lot of problems, even though the space itself is private. Um, So when schools create all gender restrooms, it's doing two things. First of all, it's creating a space that those youth can use uh, without singling them out because other students can also use it. And second of all, uh, if it's done well, it's making a statement that the school staff accept and support transgender and non-binary youth and really want to meet their needs. Um, And so that in itself can be a very powerful signal. There are other things that schools can do in that respect, too. So, for instance, having a strong gender sexuality alliance club we know can be really beneficial. Um, Training teachers to intervene in identity-based bullying, um, including LGBTQ lessons. Uh, So uh, historical figures, for instance, um, LGBTQ uh, identity in the curriculum. There are lots of things that schools can do. Um, But youth do say that all gender restrooms can be an especially important uh, step to take. And it's interesting, like it's kind of what you're saying is that in order for them to be effective, they actually have to be inclusive spaces that that everyone is using. That's exactly right. Uh, So really the thing that comes out um, in the qualitative research that others have done previously on this issue uh, is the importance of not singling out transgender and non-binary youth, that they want to be able to use the same facilities that their peers are using and to not have uh, what we've been calling unwanted negative attention drawn to them based on the facilities that they are or are not able to use. Mm -hmm. And you spoke a few minutes ago about kind of the importance of, for example, like teachers intervening in bullying. Are there there kind of other, I don't know if authority figures is the right word, who kind of play a key role, whether it's like doctors who can be talking to um, young adults, like who are kind of, I guess, some of the other kind of key people who can play a role in either intervening or kind of being an important person for, for teens to talk to? Yeah, so adults are really huge here. Um, So adults, first of all, at school really set the tone. So not only teachers, but school counselors, administrators. Uh, It's really important that uh, trans and non-binary youth have a trusted adult that they can turn to at school for any problems that they're having. And then beyond school, um, parents are extremely important. Um, So we know uh, for youth in general, um, having a close and supportive relationship with your parents um, means that you're less likely to experience sexual assault. Uh, There may be various reasons for that, but in general, close and supportive relationships with parents are really important for adolescents. Um, And uh, as well as pediatricians. Um, So pediatricians, one important role that they can play uh, is being an advocate with schools. Um, Mm -hmm. So if uh, schools are not 
uh, providing appropriate restrooms and locker room access. Um, pediatricians can write a letter, they can call the school and they can say, look, it's really important that uh, students have X, Y, and Z. Um, so they can play a very important role as well. And what are some of the biggest barriers to putting some of these more you know, inclusive policies in place, whether it's something like you know, an all-gender restroom or kind of more student alliances? What, what are some of the barriers that exist there and are there, are there strategies for overcoming those? So I think the uh, situation in a lot of school districts is that uh, parents uh, of non-transgender students um, are hearing misinformation about what it means for a school to have supportive policies for trans and non-binary youth. Um, and they also know, maybe from their own middle and high school experiences, that restrooms and locker rooms can be very fraught spaces. They're often not well supervised. They're often a place where bullying and harassment takes place. Um, and their own child may have experienced bullying and harassment in locker rooms. So the combination of that misinformation and their own knowledge about these are really tough spaces in middle and high school um, may lead them to, for instance, call school administrators, call the school board, and uh, identify transgender and non-binary students and policies about them as the problem, when in fact, that's not actually the problem, mm -hmm. right? The problem may be that restrooms and locker rooms are not being well supervised, staff aren't being adequately trained to address bullying and harassment. So what school boards and school administrators may be hearing is from these parents who have a real concern they are confused about the source of that concern. And it may be that the vast majority, in many cases, the vast majority of parents and the community um, understand the issue, understand why trans and non-binary youth need to be supported, but those parents aren't the ones picking up the phone and calling. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that uh, schools and school boards uh, need to be prepared to articulate what they're doing about problems in restrooms and locker rooms and to make those spaces safer um, when parents call with concerns. Um, they need to feel confident uh, about talking to parents who wonder about uh, trans and non-binary youth in their child's school. Um, and they also need to understand that most people in their community uh, may be very supportive of what they do to protect trans and non-binary youth. Uh, so that's somewhere where supportive community members can call in. Uh, so if you are a parent of a child who's in school who's not transgender or non-binary, um, making clear to your child's school and your child's school district that you support what they're doing or what they should be doing to protect trans and non-binary youth, mm -hmm. that's a place where you can make a real difference. Mm -hmm. So it was interesting. Uh, Sari Reisner, who is one of your co-authors, I heard him speak uh, a couple of years ago, and this was actually around the time of um, the, the North Carolina, the, the, the bathroom bill and the controversy around that. Uh, and Sari had made the, the point that, uh, you know, really in public health, there has been historically, there just hasn't been much research into transgender and non-binary teens and mental health issues around sexual harassment, sexual assault. Um, do, do you see that has, is changing? Is there more research kind of happening in this area? And what more needs to be done? Um, because it seems like, as you were saying, I mean, there's still so many unanswered questions. So are we seeing that tr trend change? Is more research in these areas? Or, you know, is there positive progress in that area? Absolutely. Um, so I think there's been, there's been more research um, addressing uh, health disparities um, for LGBTQ people in general and transgender and non-binary people in particular. Um, and I think another thing that we're seeing is um, there are um, issues that people who uh, work on the ground, so uh, clinicians who work directly with youth, um, uh, people who work in schools, um, understand very well. Um, 
but we haven't necessarily had the uh, the hard data to back them up. Mm. Um, so I think as people have learned more and more about how do we collect data about the experiences of transgender and non-binary youth, um, how do we identify transgender and non-binary youth in surveys, what are the right questions mm. to be asking, um, we are able to follow up that on the ground knowledge um, with some uh, quantitative findings. Mm -hmm. um, so I doubt that anyone who works closely with transgender and non-binary youth was surprised by what we found about restrooms and locker rooms and sexual violence. Um, but now that we have these numbers, it uh, broadens the conversation um, and I think helps us to make, helps us to impress on people who don't work in this field every day uh, how big of a problem this is. Thank you to Gabe Murchison for taking the time to speak with us. If you want to read more about this study, we'll have a link to the paper on our website, hsph.me slash thisweekinhealth. That's all for this week's episode. A reminder that you can find us wherever you get your podcast. And if you're a fan, we'd love it if you could take a few minutes to leave a rating and a review. Thanks for listening.